The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. Good morning. It's good to see everybody. Uh, it's nice to be with you guys today. How many of you live in Souter Dorm? All right, that's good. Uh, my, uh, <laughs> my favorite two years of being a student here were living in Souter Dorm. So uh, there's even still some evidence of the fact that my friends and I lived there from 1994 to, see, we were there 94 to 96. So if you find that evidence, let me know. Um, but it's good to be with you today. And uh, as uh, was just mentioned, I have the privilege to Pastor Core Creek Community Church. Many of you I know from there as well, so that's fun to see you in this context also. And uh, have been really enjoying the opportunity this semester to teach the church planting course here at the university. I was really grateful to be asked to do that, and that's been going really well. And so that's something that in the future, if you see that offered again, sign up for it. Promise it'll be worth your while. If that's ever something that the Lord impresses upon your heart to do, because I remember when I was a student here at Cairn, um, during that time, I, you know, I was reading and studying a variety of things, and one of the things that really started to sink into my mind was the fact that I believed that the Lord was calling me to plant churches, but I wondered how that would be facilitated and how that would come to pass, and I never in a million years imagined that I'd be right back here in Langhorne. Ten years ago, my family moved back here after a church not too far away, about eight minutes away here from the university, closed, and uh, the property and everything was turned over to us to plant a new church. And so this, by the way, is why it's also important to marry well, because I said to my wife when the Lord started impressing upon my heart uh, to do that, I said, hey, I have an idea. Now, tell me how many people you think would go for something like this. I said, so the ch that church down in Langhorn that closed, uh, we have the opportunity to go there and plant a new church. There's no place for us to live. There's no people there. Well, there's a couple people there, but they could all fit in one car. Um, and there's no salary. And mind you, we have four kids, right? And I was like, what do you think? And uh, her response was, yeah, let's do that. <laughs> and it's been great. We've, we've been down here 10 years now, and it's been fantastic, and we're really grateful for it. And uh, one of the things that I really appreciate about the context in which I have the privilege to serve is just the genuine community that the Lord has fostered around us. So we don't have family that lives right around here. Uh, when we were living in northeast Pennsylvania, all my family lives up there, or the most of them do. And so we very easily were able to access family and, and lots of well-established friendships. But when we moved here, we were hours away from our families. And so our church very much had the privilege to be, and, and we have the privilege to be with them, family. And the Lord fostered a genuine sense of community. And the other night, sitting in my family room, um, I had a group of men from the church over, and we were talking about a variety of things, but one of the things we were talking about was this idea of biblical community and biblical fellowship and what that should look like in the context of the church right now and in our lives right now and why that matters right now. And uh, I, you know, I mentioned to them, you know, as the pastor of our church, that's something that I always want to try and be fostering. I want to foster a genuine sense of biblical community and try and you know, uh, create structures that help encourage that and opportunities that help facilitate that. And so we were talking about that, and that's the, the kind of thought we're going to talk about this morning, the importance of biblical community, specifically 
We're going to spend some time this morning talking about the idea of recapturing the heart and the mindset of the early church. Because when you look in the book of Acts, particularly the early chapters of the book of Acts, you can see that displayed in very clear ways. The heart and the mindset of the early church, they spent life together, they enjoyed each other's company, they made investments in one another's lives, and the Lord was glorified through it. So if you would take your Bibles and open up with me to Acts chapter 4. The section we're going to look at isn't super long, but it's very interesting. And obviously I'm, I'm certain that, that most, if not all of you, are well familiar with this portion of Scripture but in Acts chapter 4, uh, we're going to pick up at verse 32. And I'm just going to read down to verse 37, and then we'll pray together. And then we're going to revisit some of these verses individually. But Acts chapter 4, starting with verse 32, this is what it states. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. And there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege to be able to just carve out a brief little spot in our day today to look at your word and to think about and meditate on the things that you speak to us through it. And Lord, as we take a look at this idea of the heart and the mindset of the early church, we pray that by your grace that you'd help us to glean from their example. Lord, we pray that you'd teach us things that, naturally speaking, we wouldn't have known, but things that only you can reveal to us through your word and by the power of your Holy Spirit. So Lord, thank you for allowing us to be able to spend some time looking at these things together, and we commit this time to you in Jesus' name, amen. So one of the joys of being a follower of Christ is the privilege that he grants us to be part of his family, the church. Now, in Christ, all believers are united to him as the head of the church and to one another as his body. And when you look at what Scripture teaches us, it teaches us that we were created by the Lord to operate in community, and we have the privilege to be a vital and beneficial part of one another's lives but I'm sure you've already discovered this, particularly if you live in a dorm context. Uh, living in community with your brothers and sisters in Christ is not always an easy thing to do. And I remember, um, you know, I mentioned just a few moments ago how for a couple of years I had the privilege to live in Souter dorm. I was excited to find out that I know some people that live in Souter dorm now. It's a very pivotal season of my life, but I lived with people sometimes who were very different from me. Now, one of the things that my wife would tell you about me is that I tend to be uh, rather OCD. Uh, I tend to like things in their order. You know, I tend to like things in a particular way. Um, you know, my car, I like to keep it clean. My office, if you come to my office and you look at my office, my books are organized by topic and then by height so that they have a nice cascading 
order till you get to whatever the small book is on that subject. <clears throat> and then you go back to the big books, and then they proceed to work their way down. It's a very beautiful thing. And the Lord saw fit to bless me with a roommate that saw life quite differently. And, um, <laughs> and I remember when I, I shared with a few people who my roommate was, as they got to know me, they were like, how does that work? Now, do they still inspect your rooms from time to time? Do you have, like, an inspection? Okay, so we had that, I think that was on twice a week. I think it was, like, Monday and Thursday our room was inspected. And, um, and he hated making his bed. And uh, I had the top bunk, he had the bottom bunk, and he got the genius idea. He said, I think I figured out a way that I don't ever have to make my bed again. I was like, why is that like a joy to you, to not have to make your bed again? You should probably make your bed again someday. He's like, no, check this out. Instead of a fitted sheet, I just use another comforter. And so he took another comforter and made that his fitted sheet. And he's like, and then, just prior to room inspection, all I have to do is take my top comforter and throw it in the closet. And I'm like, you're the worst person I've ever met. <laughs> I was like, why? Why does it have to be that way? You throw everything in that closet, and now you're comforter too. That's how you make your bed. Throw the comforter in the closet. Mind you, in that closet, he also had an illegal mini fridge. So I'm thinking, this has got to be a fire hazard. You know, but I didn't want to be a snitch, because sometimes I would use the illegal mini fridge, but just the same. I'm like, you've got a comforter, an illegal mini fridge, and you think that's bad enough, right? I took summer session here, where I lived on campus for, for um, six weeks, the one year, and uh, they roomed me with another good friend of mine, who during that time got a pet. Now, if you have pets here, you're going to get in trouble, right? You're not supposed to have pets, except in the summer, they're kind of, you know, back then they were, they didn't check rooms at all. So he got a pet. You know what he got? He got a ball python. And I was like, why do you have this thing? He's like, I've always wanted a python. Who in their right mind always wants a python? And then he went away for a couple days. And he's like, listen, we've got to keep this thing. It's a python. We've got to keep this thing used to people. And he's like, so you're going to have to like, you know, hang out with it and play with it and stuff. I was like, I don't really want to play with the python. He's like, no, you got to do it. Otherwise, it's not going to stay used to people. And he's like, and you got to feed it. And you had to feed it live mice. Mind you, this is in Souter dorm. And so, and so I was like, all right, I'll do it. Because it was really important to him. And uh, by the way, he named the thing Sugar Cookie. That was the name of the python, Sugar Cookie. So I, I, uh, I took Sugar Cookie, a ball python, out of its tank. And I'm sitting there. And he said, all you got to do, you just got to stroke it and stuff. So he's gone. And I'm, I'm like, all right, here we go, snake. So I take it out, I put it on my, around my, the back of my shoulders and on my left arm, and I'm holding it there and I'm just stroking it, but it had trouble shedding. And there was this one spot where it would get dry scales. And as I'm doing this, I'm kind of being lulled into like, you know, just like a trance, effectively. I'm just like when you pet a dog, you're just like, ah, it's so relaxing. I'm petting a ball python, it's so, <laughs> so nice. And then I accidentally brushed the dry scales the wrong way. Going like this, I accidentally went too close and went the opposite way. And it's like, right up the back. And, it, and the snake, and I'm not exaggerating at all, it went like this. It goes, and it's looking at me straight in the face. I was like, oh, goodness. And I'm watching it, and I'm like, okay, remember, I fed you a mouse the other day. Remember, don't bite the face that feeds you. And uh, then finally, it settled down, and it starts going like this. 
looking at me out the side of its eye. And as soon as its head got like this, I was like, okay, yoink. Took it by its neck, put it in the aquarium, locked the lid. I was like, you could take care of your own stupid snake. I'm not doing anything with this ever again. Now, hopefully you have better roommates than I had. But when you're living in community, there are things that challenge that. Sometimes our preferences or sometimes our selfish tendencies get in the way. And as much as we don't like to admit that we even have these things, they're there. Sometimes as the result of an offense, you know, if somebody offends you, it can be very easy to pull away from others while you brood over what has you upset. Other times, I think it could be very easy to start to lose sight of what's really important in this world. And as a result, we start um, investing our time elsewhere. Instead of investing our time in Christ's people, and instead of allowing them to make investments in us. But thankfully, when you look at a portion of Scripture like we just read a moment ago from Acts chapter 4, we have multiple examples in Scripture that give us a glimpse of the attitude that Christ wants to foster among us. An attitude, a heart, a mindset that he wants to be prevalent among his family. And as we look at some of these examples, I think that we can learn a little bit more about what it looks like to recapture the heart and the mindset of the early church. Now, let's revisit a couple of those early verses. Look at verse 32, and then I'm going to jump down to verse 34. Let me reread it. But in verse 32, it says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And then you jump to verse 34, and it says, There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So what do we see practiced here among the early believers during that generation in the era of the early church? Well, they were letting their unity foster a sense of generosity among them. They were letting their unity foster a sense of generosity among them. By the way, a few months ago, I had the opportunity to attend a pastor's conference. Uh, it was in May. And I have to go to this thing every year, and so I went to this, and there's, there's church leaders, and I enjoyed it. But the whole time, I'm missing my family, and I couldn't wait to get home to my family. And sometimes when I'm away from my family, I think, I wonder if they miss me as much as I miss them. Probably not, but I think in this moment, they did. Because when I got home, I had been home for less than an hour, and um, my son came up to me with something. It was a bag of something. And he handed it to me, and he, he effectively said with this gift, I'm glad you're home. And I knew he meant it because it was a precious, precious substance that was in that bag. Spicy, sweet, chili Doritos, the kind that come in the purple bag. That's like currency in our home. And he gave it to me, and it was like, hey, I'm glad you're home. And his love inspired an act of generosity, and I was blessed by that. And when you look at what the early church uh, lived like and what they did and how they operated. This scripture tells us about the early church, and you can see a high degree of generosity among them as well. Keep in mind the context they lived in. These believers, in many respects, were living like outcasts in their society. There was a high degree of pressure on them to reject Christ and to reconform to societal norms, but they didn't do that. Instead, they grew closer. And the Lord fostered genuine unity among them. 
And in correlation with that sense of unity, we could see examples like this here where they joyfully expressed generosity toward, none, uh, toward one another. Now, consider some of the results of this generosity. We're told here in these verses that within the church, there were no needy people anymore. Because in response to the generosity they had received from Jesus Christ, the church began treating everything that they owned as something that ultimately belonged to the Lord, so they would use it to bless one another as good stewards of the blessings he had entrusted to them. So when needs were present among their brothers and sisters in Christ, they went out of their way to meet those needs. And the example we're given here, someone even as far as liquidating their real estate, selling land, selling homes, things of that nature. They would liquidate their real estate in order to bless others with the proceeds that came from the sale of that real estate. This is a beautiful thing to consider. And mind you, this wasn't like a state-mandated or government-mandated activity. This was the fruit of changed hearts. This was something that as the Lord changed their hearts, they were blessing one another as their unity was fostering generosity. And I think when a person gains a deep understanding of who Christ is and truly what he's done on our behalf, I think this becomes the outpouring of a life that recognizes Christ as Lord. This is the manner in which a true family learns to care for one another. Their unity fostered Christ-centered generosity. There's something else that's brought up to us in this portion of Scripture that I think is worth noticing. Look at verse 33. In verse 33, it says this. So it's right, on, you know, right in the midst of talking about this unity and generosity. But it says, And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. So what were they doing? They were testifying to the power of Christ's resurrection. By the way, testimony has a lot of power, does it? Does it not? You know, like a personal testimony. I had an interesting experience just a few months ago. We're in the process, our church is in the process of uh, daughtering a church. We're planting a church about a half hour away in the town of West Conchahawken. We didn't use the name West Conchahawken in the name of the new church because even we don't know how to spell it. Um, <laughs> But, I, I, you know, it was the first nice day, and I was preaching on the sacrificial love of Christ. And while I was preaching, somebody pulled up to the front of the church. We had the front doors open, and it's a small congregation, so I just had a music stand that I was using to speak, and I had it in the center aisle. And since this is a great thing to do, by the way, when, um, when people naturally tend to sit toward the back, so if you have a music stand, you just take it to the back, you know, and you bring the sermon to them, right? So I did that. And the front doors of the church aren't very, or aren't very far from the road. And a car pulled up, and a guy was sitting there, and he was looking into the church. And I could tell he was listening to the message. I thought he was probably just trying to pick somebody up from one of the local homes. But he's listening to the message, and I thought, oh, this is cool. This guy is trying to just pick somebody up, and he has to hear a sermon on the sacrificial love of Christ. And I thought, great, what a neat opportunity. Evangelism, and I'm still inside the walls of the church. And... Um, and, you know, I notice he's listening very intently, and then at the very end of the message, he rolls down his window, and he starts screaming into the church that God is hate. He starts screaming, God is hate! Your God is hate! And I was like, whoa, did not think that would be the application you took from the, a message on the sacrificial love of Christ. 
And, um, and I said, sir, could you tell me, exa-? and I couldn't, I had a hard time understanding him, he had a very thick accent, I had a hard time figuring out exactly what he was saying at first until I caught on a little bit. And then after just screaming and screaming, um, he finally said to me, he said, you press on my nerves. And mind you, everybody's sitting there listening to this. He goes, you press on my nerves. And then he goes, you press on Muslims' nerves. You're going straight to hell on the day of judgment. And then he drove off. And I was like, that was freaky. I was like, what on earth was that about? And then he went and did something similar in another local church. And then I got a call from the news. And the news said, hey, can we stop by and interview you? Apparently, this is a thing going on. Then I got a call, actually, right before I got the call from the news, let me flip that, I got a call right before the news from Homeland Security. And they're like, hey, can we talk to you a little bit about what took place at your church? And I was like, sure. By the way, Homeland Security, much nicer than I thought. (laughs) I thought that they would be more gruff than they are. Excellent customer service. (laughs) Our tax dollars are being really invested well in our Homeland Security. And he wanted my testimony of everything that took place because as they were trying to figure out what was going on and if there was a threat to local churches of some kind by this person who kept going in and threatening people like, what did he, they want to know, what did he mean by you're going straight to hell on the day of judgment? Is this something he's planning to facilitate? Is this something he's talking about in, you know, like distant future? What is he talking about? They wanted to figure out who this guy was. By the way, we had it all recorded too. And so the local news interviewed me, and then they played the recording all on the news. Homeland Security found the guy, discovered he was here illegally. I had to testify, um, not in a court context, but I was willing to, but I had to testify to them about what took place. And uh, a couple months ago, the man was actually sent back to his country. He was here illegally, and Homeland Security wanted him out of the country. And I was like, wow, that was kind of freaky, but a lot of the things that they wanted to know from me related to personal testimony. What did you see? What happened? Is there more to this story that we can figure out from the context you're able to give us? What kind of car was he driving? Did you see any weapons? Is there anything like that? And so I just gave them the best testimony that I possibly could, and then they, they went from there as they were asking questions. And it's interesting how accurate testimony is valued in the context of our justice system, But consider this for a second. Accurate testimony is also a very, very powerful tool in regard to spiritual matters as well. In the days of the early church, one of the keys, or one of the key ways that the Lord was using the leaders that he had raised up was to testify to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So here you have the apostles, You have many others who were eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ. And as they testified to the historical fact that Jesus indeed rose from the grave, I'm also certain that they testified to the powerful significance his resurrection has for all who trust in him. So consider the resurrection of Christ for just a moment, because it tells us here that they were testifying to his resurrection. So consider the resurrection of Christ. Do we realize and do we meditate on this thought during the course of a normal day what Christ actually accomplished for us when he rose from death? Because here it says, you know, what are they talking about? What are they testifying about? Well, they're testifying about the resurrection of Christ. So what did Christ's resurrection accomplish? 
What did he do? What significance does his resurrection have for us? Well, first off, in rising from death, he proved that he was God. He's proving his divinity. Now, in addition to that, consider what, he, what this means for us. We were once defeated by sin, Satan, and death. We were locked in chains to those things. But in his resurrection, Jesus Christ defeated sin, which means he defeated sin's stranglehold on us. Now, I don't know um, what you're currently struggling with right now, but there's something in your life right now that you wrestle with. Because Jesus rose from the grave, he's already secured victory for you in that area. If we trust him to supply it, we'll experience it. Jesus defeated sin's stranglehold on us. You are not powerless in your seasons of temptation. You are not powerless in the midst of the sins you're wrestling with. He defeated sin's stranglehold on us. That's part of what he accomplished in his resurrection. He also defeated Satan's control over our lives. Satan doesn't need to be my Lord or my master or your Lord or your master. You know, at one point he was pulling strings over our eyes. Scripture describes him as one who actively seeks to blind the, the eyes and the minds and the hearts of unbelievers. And that was a spot we were once in. But guess what? Satan is a defeated foe. In Christ's resurrection, he defeated Satan's control over our lives. In his resurrection, Christ also defeated death's power over us. Now, I experienced uh, a death in my family just a few months ago. In fact, my mother was the one that passed away. And obviously, that's a consequential moment in any person's life, and your heart feels quite heavy when you're going through that. But you grieve differently when you're certain that death's power over you is defeated. And when you're certain that death's power has been defeated in your mother's life as well. When you know that there's a pause in your daily opportunity to converse, but there's not a pause in your relationship. Because in Christ, death has been defeated in our lives. Yeah, our physical body will wear out, but guess what? We're getting a new one. And he assures us that we too will rise again with new incorruptible bodies that can't experience pain, can't experience disease, can't experience death, new bodies that are perfectly fit for an eternity in his perfect presence. How openly do we rejoice over that truth? Do our words and our lives regularly testify to the power and the effect of Christ's resurrection? Because when you look at what the apostles were doing, so they went place to place and person to person. They were testifying to the power of Christ's resurrection. He's defeated sin's stranglehold over us. He's defeated Satan. He's defeated death. And he shares his victory with all who trust in him. And the early church made that their proclamation. But this scripture from Acts chapter 4 reminds us of one additional thing that in addition to these other things, we could pretty easily practice right here and now. Because when we're talking about the heart and mindset of the early church, one of the things that starts to become apparent from a chapter like this is that they were also known for their intentional encouragement of one another. They encouraged one another, and there's an example of that here in verse 36. Look what it says. It says, thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. What was he called? Son of encouragement. Do you ever have somebody encourage you at just the right time? 
I was going through a low spot a few years ago, and a pastor I'm friends with uh, sent me a message. I guess it was online he sent it to me. And it was a quote. He had been in Africa serving there for a period of time. And um, it was uh, from another ministry leader in Africa. It was just a word that encouraged him at one point. So he sent it to me, and I read through it, and I was like, wow, this is very encouraging. Then I came across it last year. And no, actually, it was earlier this year I came across it. And since that time, this same friend has volunteered to take on leadership of a ministry organization, and it's involved a lot of stress, a lot of exhaustion, a lot of personal sacrifice, and a lot of pain. And I knew he was feeling down. And I came across the encouragement that he sent me, and I sent him the same words back to remind him of the very things that he had also shared to me. And he mentioned to me, he's like, that is so encouraging. I was like, I'm just returning the favor because when I needed encouragement, you made sure to pass it on to me. And I look at a portion of scripture like this that speaks of an encourager. And in my mind, I imagine being a Christian during the era of the early church. And I wonder what it was like based on what we read in the book of Acts and throughout the New Testament. That culture did not share their values. Do you ever feel like an outcast in our own culture? This culture doesn't share your values. Shock, right? Are some of you surprised? You're like, what? I thought this culture shared my values. Surprise, they didn't, you know, or they don't. This culture doesn't share our values, right? That culture did not share their values. In this context of the early church, Christians were often arrested. Christians were often killed simply for trusting in Christ and making his gospel known. And yet, in the midst of that context, the Lord raised up people with the gift of encouraging others. I believe they were strategically planted by the Lord. And one of those examples is mentioned here, a man named Joseph, who the scripture tells us eventually became called Barnabas, which is a nickname. It's not his given name. It's just a nickname, but it means son of encouragement. And he was apparently known so well as an encourager that it became the primary title people started to use when they would reference or they would address him. He's just Barnabas now. He used to be Joseph. Now he's Barnabas. That guy's an encourager. Now, what do you suppose the Lord wants us as people living right now to learn from the example of someone's life like Barnabas? Well, it's clear when you look throughout the book of Acts that Barnabas was someone who was passionate about helping others come to know Christ in a personal and meaningful way. He traveled to do so. He partnered with other ministry leaders to do so. He encouraged his family to do so as well. In fact, he was related to Mark, the guy that wrote the Gospel of Mark. But what do, you suppose, what do you suppose life would be like right now for us if we as believers in Jesus Christ all became known as intentional encouragers? So much so that people might even give you a nickname. Now, there's people in my life and people in your life that dis discourage me and you, right? They're intentional discouragers. It's not pleasant to experience that. But what if we as believers became known as intentional encouragers? And so I'm asking it in a personal way because I want you to ask yourself this kind of question. Is there someone in your life right now that the Lord wants you to encourage through your words? So he gives you words to say. But as of yet, you've been holding those words in because you know that to take the risk to encourage somebody is a genuine risk. You don't know how they're going to respond. You don't know what they're going to say. You don't know if they'll receive it well. But how might the Lord be seeking to bless somebody else or prod them on in a healthy direction through the encouragement that he lavishly blesses them with through you? Are you encouraged by the people that the Lord has strategically placed in your life that operate like a Barnabas? 
Because when you look at the culture and mindset of the early church, you see a variety of things just in these few verses here. You know, unity was fostering their, their generosity. They were testifying openly to the resurrection of Christ. And you have, you have a group of people here and prominent leaders among them who started to become known for their intentional encouragement. Let me finish up by mentioning someone that the Lord used as an encouragement to me. And I hope that this encourages you to utilize something like this in the, in the lives of the people that the Lord's blessed you with the privilege of knowing. But I remember growing up in the context I grew up in, um, by the grace of God, we were part of a good local church. And uh, I, I come from a broken family. Our family had a lot of conflict, and that happened pretty early in my life. And so in some ways, I had to grow up kind of early during that season. And then in other ways, I just was like as rebellious as you could possibly be as a 12-year-old. And um, I remember at one point, uh, so we would go to church, and my mom would make me go to Sunday school all the time. And I remember at one point I tried to skip out of Sunday school, and somebody told her, and she came and found me behind the church. And I was like, how did she know? Now I know parents talk to one another, you know. Hey, your son's skipping. Let me go get him. But I had a Sunday school teacher. Her name was Jean. Uh, Jean Constantine, her name was. And she would always teach us as kids. She would teach us, like, good theology. She would teach us the scripture. And she would pull me aside regularly. And I always used to think, if she knew me well, she wouldn't say this stuff to me, because I knew I was getting in a lot of trouble. But she would come, she'd pull me aside, and she's like, John, I don't know what the Lord's going to do in your life, but I know he's going to use you. I know he's going to use you. He's got something special in store for you. He's going to use you. And I used to think to myself, why does she always say that? Like, why does she always say that? And I could tell she was sincere. I was like, but if she knew me, she would not say that. And um, I remember that coming back to my mind the first few months I was pastoring a church. So this is 20 years ago. I had just finished up at Cairn. I was pastoring a church. I was sitting at my desk the one day trying to do some sermon prep. And it dawned on me. I thought, wow, like, at that season, I never in a million years would have thought that I'd be preparing a sermon someday and leading a church I was just thinking about all the people that invested in my life to get me there. And then I remember Jean, and I was like, she always would say, and I don't know why the Lord had this in her mind, she'd always encourage me with this thought that the Lord was going to do something in my life when I was very discouraged and feeling a bit disjointed. And I was like, I gotta, that always encouraged me so much. I thought, i got to write her a letter and just thank her. And so I wrote her a letter, and I sent it off and got confirmation from her family that she received it, so I was happy about that. I knew her health wasn't so good. And uh, she passed away two weeks later, and suddenly. But her health wasn't great, but they still didn't expect she was going to pass away. And I remember at that time thinking, I'm so glad I took the time during her final two weeks to maybe just return the favor and send her a quick word of encouragement and let her know that what she did investing in me when I was a 12-year-old boy really, really mattered. And so I was grateful for the privilege to, in a small way, return what she had done for me. Barnabas did that. I think he was very strategically placed among the apostles. They needed a lot of encouragement during that era. You're strategically placed, too. There's not a single person you know by accident. Every single person that the Lord's placed in your life is there on purpose. And we as believers in Christ have received so much from him. And as grateful men and women... We have the privilege to pour some of that back in our brothers and sisters in Christ 
by intentionally encouraging them. The heart and the mindset of the early church reflected these things. And by the grace of Christ, we have the privilege to reflect them as well. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your goodness toward us and for the privilege that it is to just carve out a few minutes in our day to spend some time together studying your word and growing in our walk with you. Lord, by your grace, we pray that you'd help us to kind of recapture the heart and the mindset of the early church, that we would be people who are generous, that we'd be people who ultimately testify to the power of your resurrection we'd be people who encourage one another as you've encouraged us. Lord, help us to be obedient to you in these areas and help it to be a joyful obedience as we recognize what you've accomplished in our lives. We love you, Lord. We thank you for this new day. We commit it to your care, and we just praise you, Lord, for your involvement in our lives day in and day out. We commit ourselves to you now and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.